information processing is integrated into everyday objects, and the metaphor of desktop is getting a little tired. The post-desktop model of computing is known as ubiquitous computing, or Ubicomp. In this presentation from O'Reilly Media's Emerging Technology Conference, join Mike Kuniovsky as he talks about this ubiquitous computing model and how magic is the new metaphor from IT Conversations. So, uh, good morning. Thank you. My name is Mike Kuniovsky, and this morning I'm going to tell you about the coming age of magic, uh, specifically as it applies to, design, to the design of ubiquitous computing user experiences. Uh, first, let me tell you a little about who I am. Um, I'm a consultant specializing in user experience design and user research. What that means is that I spend a lot of my time thinking about relationships between technology and people. My core philosophy is that making technology is easy compared to figuring out what technology to make. And that's driven by understanding people. Over the years, I worked with a number of different organizations to help them develop technology. You just saw some logos up there, specifically with people in mind. And with that, or after that, I uh, wrote a book on that topic. And uh, it focuses on user research techniques, and uh, it's a it's kind of a cookbook of how to get inside the heads of people. And uh, roughly the same time, I uh, started a company called Adaptive Path. Uh, well, co-founded a company called Adaptive Path. And last year, I founded another company that's called Thingam. And we call Thingam a, dis a device studio. And what we do is we specialize in the relationship between information systems and objects. In other words, we're a ubiquitous computing design studio. Now let me tell you about, a little bit about why I think ubiquitous computing is so important and what it is that drove me to that from the uh, green pastures of Adaptive Path and uh, the web and Ajax and all of that. And where I want to start that is um, with something that's close to every technologist's heart. Moore's Law. And uh, I know you've seen it a thousand times, uh, but I want, to look at it, I want to look at it again. And people typically read this chart as a trend focusing on number of transistors. What's implicit in that trend is that this is happening within the context of a marketplace. So this is not just the theoretically largest number of transistors that you can fit on a CPU die. It's the largest number of transistors that you can fit on a CPU die that you can sell at a certain price. And you can actually see that over time. This is a graph that I made of CPU prices over time from uh, of the major released CPUs, the, the, the larger, more popular C, uh, CPUs at the time of their introduction. So even with the fluctuation of the price because of various market positioning things, and between competition between Intel and Motorola and uh, uh, AMD, the price actually remains pretty steady, generally between $500 and $1,000 at the time of introduction in units of $1,000. Let's look at uh, Moore's Law again. So taken in light of that, the other way that you can read this chart is that the price of older technology decreases proportionately to the increase in transistor density. So although people tend to concentrate on the right side of the curve, I'd like to draw your attention to something a little, a little bit further to the left, what I call the hidden middle of Moore's law. The range of processing power in the middle is fairly high, and the price of that processing power has dropped to nearly disposable commodity levels. I think the really interesting stuff starts right around the 486. And if you look, sure enough, you can see 
that actual chip prices reflect this price drop. Yeah, you know, an Atmel CPU, not quite the same thing as a, four, uh, a 46, but it shows that the trend is roughly correct. And so, you know, in the last 18 years, we've gone down like three orders of magnitude. So, what does this mean? This means that embedded information processing becomes a cost-effective competitive advantage, much as a new kind of material is. And like any fundamental, fundamentally new material, when added to the design of an object, information processing and wireless networking fundamentally changes the capabilities of that object. It's akin to deciding to make something out of rubber than plastic or steel versus bamboo. Let's take a look at an example. Say you want to sell more toy monkeys in an already crowded toy monkey market. Interactive behaviors such as speech, memory, maybe a little servo control under a silicone skin may just be the differentiator that sells more of your monkeys than your competitors. So doing that kind of, including that kind of uh, uh, technology with basic electronics or with, uh, just with mechanics can be pretty prohibitively expensive. But now that CPU power is cheap enough, you can in essence throw information processing at it and it becomes a competitive calculation. You can essentially put in a spreadsheet you can especially put information processing and embedded intelligence in a spreadsheet like you would choose between latex and silicone or between different kinds of fur. This means that the vision of ubiquitous computing that the late Mark Weiser had at Xerox PARC 15 years ago is now a practical reality. And furthermore, the competitive advantages of systems with embedded information processing make ubiquitous computing an emergent byproduct of the decrease in CPU prices. So, let me step back and talk about my personal motivations to uh, uh, what interests me about this. What else interests me about this? So, I left Adaptive Path and, uh, and the web three years ago and I founded Thingam with uh, Todd Kurt uh, last year because I believe that ubiquitous computing holds amazing promise for making the world a better, happier, and more interesting place. I think it is today where the web was in, say, 1992. And like the web, at its core, it's a new way of using knowledge. Ubicomp allows us to embed knowledge into our tools rather than requiring us to always serve as knowledge intermediaries for our tools. And this was possible before cheap processing, but it was, it was much harder. You know, encapsulating our knowledge of what's useful, what's interesting, what's entertaining, is much more difficult to do with steel or wood or glass than it is to do with CPUs and memory and wireless networks. But designing for it is a very different problem than, des uh, than desi designing a software application. All devices with computers in them are not terminals. The old paradigm barely works with portable computers, computers that have screens, and it's certainly never going to work for a shoe. And that's the kind of device that we're talking about. And that's the kind of device that we're going to have to design for. So seeing this, I decided to step back and think about how people, could th how people think about such devices. 
You know, these aren't just static objects. And this is, by the way, the uh, Adidas One shoe. It's got a, a CPU and an actuator in it. As you run, it updates uh, the uh, uh, characteristics, uh, uh, the characteristics of the heel, um, something like 20 times a second. You uh, uh, you adjust the performance envelope uh, with those two buttons that are under the three stripes. So these aren't just static objects. As a class, ubiquitous computing objects have memory, they can communicate, and they can act without the interactions of obvious physical forces. So what does that, uh, um, what does that do to people's, this was my question, what does that do to people's experiences with them? Well, according to anthropologist uh, Scott Atran, who studied, the who studied the development of scientific ideas in various cultures, most world cultures classify all entities in, into one of four class, uh, general classifications. These are the four. Humans, like basically everything uh, in the universe generally kind of boils down to one of these uh, four things in most world cultures. Humans, non-human animals, plants, and non-living things. Which of these classifications would devices with internal decision-making and behaviors fit into? Well, my hypothesis is that people make analogies between the devices and animals and consider them closer to animals than to non-living things like rocks. So in other words, their reactions to ubiquitous computing devices are likely to be at some level animist. And here's, a, here's one definition of animism. What's interesting to me uh, about it is how it relates to you, uh, is about how it relates to Ubicomp is not, not that it literally represents people's relationship to embedded information processing but that it may represent a gut level, at a gut level, how people relate to all objects that, behave, that exhibit behaviors which go beyond basic action-reaction physics. So people know that a Roomba isn't an animal, but sometimes they still treat them that way. So for me as a, as a designer, knowing how people react when presented an, uh, a novel experience or what their expectations are for it, you know, it makes it easier to, des to design that technology. But there's a problem with this, that we can't design animism. It's an effect. It's not a design guideline. So this led me to my, my, to my next question. What had portable computing devices, or how had portable de de computing devices been designed before? So I went back, and I went back and kind of uh, looked back at the design of various objects. And I found this. Um, this is the Sony Magic Link, released in 1995. Some of you may remember this. It's running an operating system called Magic Cap, developed by a company, appropriately for this talk, called General Magic. Um, it was started by a bunch of Apple expats, uh, maybe even some of the people in this room. And their core development principle was to couple a portable computer with network communications. Sound familiar? This is you know, around the era of the Newton or the, uh, the, fir uh, the first genera generation of the Palm Pilot, and their thinking was already in terms of networks. There was an uh, intelligent agent-based system where you could send out agents onto the network uh, that were theoretically going to collect information and bring it back to you. Um, the company never sold enough, uh, enough of these to actually generate enough software that actually did that, but that was a general idea. And they, understanding that, this uh, that these devices were different than desktop computers, they tried to extend the desktop metaphor to create a useful user interface that could encompass the power of the 
of these devices as portable network devices. And the way that they decided to do that was to leverage off of their experience creating the Macintosh UI. And to extend the desktop metaphor to a network device metaphor. So let's see what happened. This happened. This is uh, the Magic Cap desktop. And unlike previous desktops, it looks like a desk. So why is that? I mean, isn't that kind of like going backwards? I mean, this is 1995. The Mac had already been out for 10 years. Well, they had a reason for it. I mean, I think. I mean, I don't know them, and I haven't actually talked to them uh, about this theory, but I believe that what they wanted to do is to make it clear that because you were now no longer physically confined to a desk by the device, you should not be confined to, uh, uh, you should be not be confined to it in the interface. And just as the device could physically leave your desk, you could leave the desktop in the OS. So, you know, see, there's your desk on the left, there's a library, there's some other stuff. And, you know, and here it says we're in the hallway. And so this is where you can start to see where the problem of sticking too close to a metaphor when it's no longer really applicable. We're using an operating system, but now we're in a maze of passages all alike. <laughs> what happens when we go, say, east or right? Oh, we go further down the hallway. So now there aren't really even any labels on things. You know, why, what is the screen for? Why is the screen here? Well, it's for continuing the metaphor. That's why it's there. If you have a hallway, there should at least be two ends to it. So let's see what happens. See, if you look in the upper right-hand corner, you can go downtown. So let's see what happens when we go downtown. Okay, here's our house on the left. Here's a directory in the middle. And on the right, I don't know if you can see that from the back, see that tall, uh, uh, shiny building? That's the internet. <laughs> if you walk to the right and further down uh, uh, past the internet, you might find a diner. If you go inside the diner, inside the diner, and so this is what it looks like inside the diner, um, you, uh, you can see like on the back wall, there's um, a web browser. I actually still don't know what happens when you click on the donuts. <laughs> now, I don't want to criticize General Magic too much. They were doing this more than 10 years ago, and it's easy to mock something in retrospect. But what's interesting is that if you extend the desktop metaphor into a quasi-virtual space as a way of extending it to portable devices, it's grossly inappropriate. How am I, a Sony customer and business person, and you saw who was the, the target audience in that initial slide, by the... Uh, cuffs of his shirt. Sony customer and business person supposed to actually get any work done with this thing. So why am I bringing this up? Why am I going back? It's because the desktop metaphor does not and will not work with ubiquitous computing. It didn't work in 1995 and it's not going to work now. And yet that's exactly how some people are thinking about it. Sticking a basic, largely unmodified PC into an everyday object has never and will never take off. It's, not, it's just not how people use the tools in their environment. It creates an information management problem on top of all the other problems that someone is trying to solve using that device as a tool. Home automation, that, uh, uh, that kind of embedded technology, that's absolutely no better. Your house isn't a factory. And it's, not, it's not there to be optimized. You, know, you don't produce leisure. You can't automate happiness. The analogy is just all wrong. 
So I thought there must be a better way of designing such devices for people. There must be, a, there must be an existing metaphor for objects that sense, analyze, communicate, and act. And there is. It's magic. Now, let me define what I mean by magic. I don't mean augury, telepathy, rainmaking, clairvoyance, necromancy, demonic possession, or transmutation. I'm not referring to Dungeons and Dragons, Magic the Gathering, The Bride with White Hair, or World of Warcraft. In fact, I don't mean the vast majority of magical concepts that exist in every culture. I mean something specific. I mean enchanted objects. So what I'm proposing is a metaphorical relationship between magic and portable network-aware information processing objects that is analogous to the relationship between office supplies and computer screens in the desktop metaphor. And I'm explicitly not advocating pretending that technology is a kind of magic or lying about how technology works. But using an existing cultural understanding of magic objects as an abstraction to describe the behaviors of ubiquitous computing devices. So if we revisit our ideas of enchanted objects, we see that what differentiates them from their non-enchanted counterparts is their ability to have independent behaviors, to, commu uh, to communicate, to remember, to interact with other enchanted objects and people. And they don't need screens or keyboards to do it. So I've enumerated some properties of enchanted objects that I believe make them particularly good for designing Ubicomp devices. They're everyday objects. We are familiar with how to use them, at least on a basic level. You know, they're, uh, they are pre-industrial everyday objects. Shoes, hammers, windows, hats, um, plates, swords. They're physical. You can grab them, you can swing them, you can twist them, you can push them. They, they have a physical use mode that is built into the object. They don't have a screen. There's, there's no assumption that somewhere there's text output. There's going to be text output uh, uh, or a bitmap uh, that uh, needs to communicate or that that's the primary way of doing it. They're not human. So enchanted, uh, enchanted objects, you know, we don't expect them to act human. You know, they have some behavior, but we don't really expect that, uh, uh, that behavior to be exactly like us. And this is in contrast to say the implication of something like ambient intelligence, which is another, uh, another metaphor for ubiquitous computing devices. Now, if you have ambient intelligence, how smart is that intelligence? Is it smart like me? Or is it smart like a dog? Or is it smart like in, in some other way? That's, I think, much more uh, implicit in enchanted objects than it is in other metaphors. They're not superhuman. So they, you know, they may be hard to control. Mickey had trouble with all those brooms. But ultimately, you know, we're in control. You know, we can learn to be in control, and we're in control of the objects. They're not in control of us, pretty much by definition. And most stories that we have about enchanted objects are, really about, uh, are often about people getting into trouble because they don't know how to use the thing. But that implies that that is actually a rare occurrence. Most of the time, the thing works just fine. 
and that most of the time the enchanted object is, is there and is, and is working at it appropriately. So finally, that there's um, a healthy disbelief in magic. So it's, you know, we don't really believe that there's actual real magic. I mean, culturally, uh, kind of worldwide culturally, uh, uh, there is a fairly healthy disbelief, and even, even societies that have a lot of magic that is uh, kind of embedded in the, in the environment, there's, there's a distance from it and an actual real, uh, real experience. So it's more, much more likely to be treated as an analogy rather than as literal truth. Many of today's, I mean, the other thing that I observed is many of today's objects are already tapping into this and already using the, uh, the value of the things that I just mentioned in their design of ubiquitous computing objects. I mean, maybe not as explicitly. This is the ambient orb from ambient devices. It's probably no accident that it looks like a crystal ball. It's very much referencing that cultural understanding of data presentation within a device that sits on your desk. This is the Nokia medallion. It's a kind of digital amulet. It presents information, uh, well, it, pre it maybe protects you from some kind of interactions, but... Uh, <laughs> It, uh, it is a kind of a magic uh, uh, amulet that uh, helps you communicate things about yourself to people around you in a way that, it, uh, in a way that is more than just a um, basic decorative device. Let's talk about wands. Everybody loves wands. Um, so, of course, there's the Nintendo Wii. That is very clearly going in the wand direction. Sony has this patent on a wand-like video game control device. And um, here's a wand that's familiar to anyone who's been through an airport recently. They're already called wands. And here's one that's even more appropriately named. It's the Hitachi Magic Wand. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so, um, wands already exist. The concept of wands is already out there. People are already using it to describe devices that uh, have behaviors that are, uh, are interesting in some, in some way and are, are enabled by embedded technology. Uh, a little less so with the Hitachi Magic Wand and some of the others, but I couldn't help but put this up there. You know, how many times at eTech do you get to do this? <laughs> so there are, uh, there are also other such devices. So here is, and the metaphor is flexible. There are, there are different kinds of enchanted things out in the, uh, the mythical universe. Now here's Lewis Carroll's enchanted rabbit. And here's Violet's enchanted rabbit. This is the Nabaz tag. So I see that these things are already happening, that this is already uh, in progress. And in conclusion, the age of magic is coming. Ubiquitous computing, ubiquitous computing's emergence is an inevitable byproduct of market forces acting coupled with inexpensive CPUs. Metaphor is emergent because it permeates human consciousness and how we reason. Magic as a metaphor for the design of ubiquitous computing objects 
is emergent. In fact, it's merged because it's easier to go with a familiar pattern and familiar objects and familiar uh, ways of using them than, it, than new ones. And enchanted objects are one of the most familiar of all, transcending culture, material, and context. However, metaphor is very powerful. We need to be conscious of its power when we use it or we end up in irrelevant replication of unnecessary and misleading details. We as technology creators need to design products that use magic as a useful abstraction. It should not be, it should not excuse bad design or illogic. Magic, or at least good magic, does not conceal, deceive, or cripple. It explains. Yes. So the question is, um, I drew a distinction between the concept of ambient intelligence and magic. Um, so there are a number of different terms to describe what's essentially ubiquitous computing. Uh, there's pervasive computing, there's ambient intelligence, there's physical computing, there's ubiquitous computing. They're, they all essentially you know, are, are grabbing at the same elephant of embedded processors in, in everyday objects. Um, ambient intelligence is a is a, refers to a specific... Uh, Pro, uh, well, originally it referred to a specific program that was uh, funded by the European Union to, de to develop uh, pro uh, projects that are like this. Um, I think that uh, my distinction between ambient intelligence and magic is that uh, ambient uh, intelligence, I think, is kind of related to artificial intelligence and in that it, it, it projects that there's going to be intelligence in the environment, and that, uh, but it doesn't really specify what that intelligence is or how it works. It's just essentially uh, uh, saying, well, there's going to be some kind of information processing. For me, magic is actually much more um, a sp specifically about the interaction that you have with the, uh, the objects. And for me, that's the, uh, that's the distinction between those two concepts. Um, I mean, frankly, I, have, uh, I think that the canonical term for defining what ubiquitous computing, for defining kind of the what ubiquitous computing means hasn't yet settled down. I use ubiquitous computing because I'm from the West Coast. People from uh, the East Coast or from IBM use pervasive computing. People who got funding from the EU use ambient intelligence. There's disappearing computing. You know, there's 15 words that mean the same thing. Back there. So um, the question is that um, magic is usually done by a magician, and the magician has, uh, is a highly trained person who, has, uh, who really like, retains the control uh, as opposed to the audience or the, the people around them. So I think that there's a difference between stage magic and the magic of mythology and enchantment. So there's a difference for, uh, between a stage, uh, a stage magician who's, uh, who's doing illusions and say uh, the uh, kind of animist kami of Japanese culture, which, uh, uh, which are spirits that, uh, uh, that live inside uh, everyday objects. So, um, and I think that uh, what I'm talking about is the enchanted objects of myth as opposed to the enchanted objects of stage magic. This is essentially a democratization of magic that allows uh, these kinds of devices to exist uh, in uh, in all kinds of uh, environments, and to ha uh, and for people to have all kinds, and for everyone to be able to be in some ways a magician.
and for the magic to be much more prevalent than, uh, than it was before. So the, the question is uh, novelty versus utility and uh, kind of consumer perceptions of, uh, of that and how uh, when, designing, uh, when designing objects, novelty become, uh, novelty is uh, sometimes a big uh, driver of consumer be behavior. And so let me, let me ask you a question. Do, do you mean, uh, is this purely novel versus is this actually utilitarian? Is that your, your question? I believe that magic is a very good explanatory framework, and so as such, I believe that there is a, a utilitarian uh, uh, use to it, much like there was the desktop metaphor. I also believe that there is uh, that people's acceptance of technology in their lives go through phases, and so for a while, the desktop metaphor was fairly literal, and there was a fairly literal mapping even though no one really keeps a trash can on their desktop, but there was still a fairly literal mapping um, in the, uh, the interfaces. But eventually it became much more abstract. And I believe the same thing uh, would happen here, is that initially the, uh, the uh, metaphor would help to explain how things worked. And as such, there would probably be some amount of novelty to it, but I believe that it is actually a, a useful explanatory framework. And then later it would, uh, it would start, uh, it would no longer reference the objects nearly as directly. But there's an evolutionary process there that I believe happens in terms of acceptance. Uh, right there. So, so the, the question is, are there going to be some kind of standards for uh, interaction that allow for complex interactions with, the, uh, with these objects uh, more than just uh, the basic kind of buttons that were on the, uh, that were on the shoe? Um, so I believe that, uh, that there is an embedded kind of set of, there's an embedded language already within magic. I mean, if you look at kind of the way that people use, uh, use things in magical stories, there's already a, a set of kind of tropes or, or ways that you inter interact with uh, these devices. I do think that it's going to be, uh, um, there's going to be um, variation in terms of uh, what's going to happen. And I think that, um, but I do think that uh, certain ways of interacting with things are going to develop. I'm a firm believer in, as you certainly saw, in kind of the uh, kind of emergence of uh, um, of ideas from a uh, competitive environment. And so, what's going to happen is, is that some somebody's magical devices are going to uh, uh, are going to communicate their. Uh, functionality better than other people's devices and they'll become more popular uh, or maybe they'll just be much cheaper and everyone will learn how to uh, uh, how to do something a certain way and then they'll, uh, everyone will just have to do it that way and um, I think standards will essentially uh, emerge from that but I think that at, at their core they're going to be based in traditions of, ma of magic and our relationship to it which I think at some level, pretty fundamentally basic psychological relationships. Adam. So the question is, uh, because practical realities make it so that uh, things are never really developed to the uh, utmost degree that they possibly can be, will maintaining the feeling of magic within a device, uh, uh, will that be an attainable goal or will uh, uh, essentially the user experience be uh, 
you know, uh, a, 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 will the magic wear off after a, a, a certain while and then just becomes a chore? Is that what you're saying? Well, um, I think we're using different definitions of magic. So I'm using magic as a, as a metaphor for intera interaction rather than uh, the feeling that like suddenly the world around you is somehow uh, uh, glittering with fairy dust. I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, for the same reason, like your illusion in the desktop metaphor that you were sitting at a desk didn't last for very long, but it was still a useful framework within which to design. And I believe that uh, magic s uh, serves a similar role, that you know, you're not going to think that it's actually, uh, you know, maybe the first time you use it, uh, like, you know, the classic experience of like, you know, an iPod or, you know, where we're talking, you're talking about sliding doors uh, or escalators. You know, uh, you know, they're kind of magical, you know, the, the first time you use it. But after a while, it's not really magical anymore, but it's still useful and you know how to use it. And that's where the, uh, uh, and that's where the, uh, the metaphor comes in. Corey. So the question is, can you, uh, can you produ uh, produce magic that uh, is done by users for users without a des uh, you know, professional designers uh, working at a high level? Uh, working I think absolutely. I mean, all kinds of magic objects are pretty damn ugly. And, uh, and I think that, um, again, you know, the, uh, the, the metaphor is about uh, the use of it, not uh, kind of the level of polish uh, of it. And I think that um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a metaphor about behavior rather than about, uh, than about finish. And I, I think that there's absolutely no problem with, uh, with people creating um, ugly, difficult-to-use magic objects. I mean, they're going to do that just as they make ugly, difficult-to-use uh, desktop or web desktop applications or, uh, uh, or web pages. But, you know, what that... Uh, what magic does is it allows there to be a uh, system within which that's designed, within, within the, uh, which that, uh, that works, so that you can, instead of having to reinvent the entire interaction uh, from scratch, you can work within a set of, not necessarily standard, but uh, with a, within a set of kind of accepted uh, ideas and tropes. There's a couple of questions over there. I'm not sure who, who was first, but since you're standing, do I expect a barrier to entry for malicious groups who will have issues? Of course. You know, everyone's got problems with something. Uh, <laughs> religious groups. Uh, um, yes. I mean, sure. But on the other, on the other hand, I mean, it's, I think in certain places the, uh, uh, there's going to be a large public acceptance because there's already a large public understanding of these kinds of things. And if there are, if, if there are bar uh, barriers, yeah, probably. I mean, there's, uh, there were all ki there've been all kinds of uh, different barriers uh, for various uh, interaction uh, interaction metaphors. You know, probably took a while for you know to get back to the desktop metaphor, which is kind of my touchstone in this talk. Um, it probably took a while for that to uh, permeate certain cultures because the objects didn't really make that much sense because they didn't have them. You know, they didn't ha use Manila folders, and. Uh, and so I think that there are, uh, there are barriers. And yeah, you know, but you know, people protest uh, uh, you know, about Dungeons and Dragons all the time, and yet it still keeps on going. And uh, the question is, uh, presumably because uh, devices, uh, the more powerful a device, the more dangerous it is, is there a way that I've thought about uh, in terms of expressing the danger with, uh, within a device to, uh, to its user in terms of the metaphor? Not really. <laughs> I mean... I, and I think that in mythology, there isn't necessarily that, 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 that kind of implicit relationship either. You don't know if something is, uh, 
you don't know how something, uh, uh, how powerful something is just by looking at it. I mean, that's that's the core of uh, like many of the stories. So, uh, and I think that I think we're, uh, that we're all set. So thank you very much, and have a good weekend. You've been listening to a presentation from O'Reilly Media's Emerging Technology Conference. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Jeff Kirkland. Our website editor was Sathyesh Chakravarthy. The series producer is Sathyesh Chakravarthy. This is Phil Wendley. I hope you'll join me next time for another exciting presentation from eTech.